Hi, everyone. My name is Amy. I'm going to be reflecting on the readings today. reading today. As we continue the celebration of the season of Easter, today is the third and final week when the lectionary texts include a story of Jesus' interactions with his friends right after his resurrection. The accounts of Jesus' appearances after the resurrection are a great illustration of how the gospel writers were not really super concerned about telling stories that can be blended into one consistent narrative. Each gospel has a slightly different account of when various people saw the empty tomb and saw Jesus, of what Jesus did when he met his followers, of how people responded to the news. If people feel the need to determine a factual account of the course of events, I'm sure they could form one and explain away what might, they might be inclined to call apparent contradictions. Um, but the differences are there. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see the different way um, that each gospel presents the stories, presents the events. In Luke's gospel on Sunday morning, the women go to the tomb and find the stole run away. And inside they find not Jesus's body, but two men who are frankly a bit snarky. <laughs> um, they ask them why they would look for the living among the dead and remind them that Jesus told them that he would die and rise again three days later. Um, the women go ahead and go tell the 11 apostles and then Peter, being Peter, um, just had to run to the tomb and see for himself that it was in fact empty. So in Luke's gospel, by midday on Sunday, we don't hear about anyone who's actually seen Jesus alive. Um, this is different from Matthew's gospel, um, where Jesus appears to the women who come to the tomb, as well as John's gospel and the extended ending of Mark's gospel, when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. I'm not going to make any judgments about whether Luke or the other gospel writers and who got the events right, um, but this is a difference um, in how Luke tells the story, and I have to think it's significant. In Luke's gospel, Jesus first appears to two people who do not appear as major characters elsewhere in the narrative. This is the only time the Gospels even mention Cleopas, and we aren't even told his companion's name. Um, the omission of the companion's name has led to some speculation that the companion was likely a woman, um, maybe Cleopas, the wife or daughter of Cleopas, but we really don't know. Um, what we do hear is that the two are traveling to Emmaus, which was about seven miles away from Jerusalem. Um, by the time they had left Jerusalem, you know, they had not received the testimony of anyone who had seen Jesus, just the witness of the women in Peter that the tomb was empty. And after the trauma of Jesus' arrest and execution, I can only imagine that reports of the missing body and the angelic, angelic proclamation might have only increased their bewilderment and increased their fear. When Jesus began walking with them, they did not recognize him. The NRSV text says, um, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And um, as far as I can tell, that's pretty much literally what the Greek says. Um, it seems kind of odd to me since it sounds like something or someone prevented them, their eyes from seeing. Um, you know, it, one might conclude that God prevented them from recognizing Jesus until this key moment. Um, but I don't think that's the only possibility. The Gospels do suggest that there was some difference in how Jesus looked before and after his resurrection. But on top of that, 
the weight of grief and just you know, having realistic expectations could have prevented them from seeing that this was Jesus. Because despite of the reports of the empty tomb, Jesus being alive was just not possible. He was publicly executed and buried three days earlier. They had these hopes of what Jesus might do, but at this point, it was all over. When Jesus asked them what they're talking about, their response is basically, how could you not know what we're talking about? Um, because apparently this is what everyone was talking about. Um, but you know, they do go ahead and fill the stranger in on what had happened. That Jesus was a powerful prophet, that they believed that he would be the one to set Israel free, um, and that he had been arrested and sentenced to be crucified. And three days after all of that, their community was now shocked to hear reports that Jesus's tomb was empty and there was angels saying that he was alive. At this point, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of understanding and slowness to believe, saying, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then, then enter into glory? This response is really interesting um, because we don't actually have any evidence that first century Jews expected the Messiah would suffer any of these things. Um, but Jesus takes them, but as they walk, Jesus takes them through the law and the prophets and puts together a picture of messianic expectations that were fulfilled in Jesus' story. Um, I want to name at this point that I struggle with this part of the passage. This notion that there is so much of the Jewish scriptures about Jesus, um, about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are so clearly pred predicted in the scriptures, so much so that Jesus calls the couple slow to believe all of the prophets had declared for not just seeing this obvious thing, seemingly. Um, I'm not comfortable with that implication that Jewish people who do not identify Jesus as the Messiah are failing to understand their own scriptures. Um, it's a hard thing for me as a non-Jewish Christian to say, well, I understand this, but the culture that this book came from just doesn't get it. Um, and I don't have a good answer of, of, of that what to do with that discomfort. Um, there doesn't seem to be, I've, from what I've read from scholars who I do, um, I do have a good impression of, um, that there just wasn't evidence that Jesus's life matched up with the contemporary Jewish expectations of the Messiah. Um, however, Jesus and his disciples and subsequent generations of Christians have found Jesus's story reflected in the Jewish scriptures, um, including some contemporary scriptures that, or some scriptures that contemporary Jews might not have associated with the Messiah. Um, so even though it is looking into the Jewish scriptures after the fact, seeing Jesus's story, um, and even though that is not the only interpretation, um, the story's there. <laughs> um, and Christians have always seen the story there. Um, now, when it talks about Jesus showing where the, where the scriptures told the story, um, it's possible that Jesus' teaching here wasn't necessarily just saying, look, here are all the times where this is clearly talking about me. Um, Jesus might also have been talking more generally about the course of his people's history, 
that God's people do not experience a straight line from glory to greater glory, but a series of setbacks, struggles, and diversions from the path on which God sent them. Their story is a story of an enslaved people who are liberated, a wandering people who are led to their own land, an exiled people who are restored to their home. Even though there might have been not have been widespread expectation that the Messiah would be executed and rise from the dead, there's people's story left open this possibility that the dead might live again. Some of the things, the scriptures that we looked at um, during Lent, you know, Valley of Dried Bones that was given, the vision of the Valley of Dried Bones that was given life and flesh and, and breath that rose again. The widow's son in stories of Elijah and Jesus, the little girl that Jesus encountered as well, were died and lived again. Lazarus, four days buried, walked out of the tomb. In their people's story and in Jesus' life, there are these reasons to hold on to hope, even when it seems like it's all over. Now, whether Jesus offered them a tour of all the prophecies that predicted him directly, or just a more general picture of God's salvation in the face of hopeless situations. Nothing about what he said causes companions to consider that this might be their teacher risen from the dead. They seem enthusiastic about wanting him to stay with them, so, you know, they, they liked him. <laughs> and, you know, later, looking back, after they realized it's Jesus, they say that their hearts were burning within them when he spoke but they still didn't recognize him until they sat down at the table. They didn't know who he was until he was at the table with them. He took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. My haphazard internet research suggests that there might be a lot of thoughts, that there are a lot of thoughts about why the disciples might have finally recognized Jesus at this point. Perhaps um, it was something extremely mundane. You know, maybe when he lifted the bread, they noticed the marks on his hands. Um, now, I don't get any, I don't have a sense that blessing and breaking the bread before a meal would have been a surprising action to be identified as Jesus' signature move, to be that unusual. Um, but it was a bit unusual for him, I, but I get the sense that it was a bit unusual for him as the guest in the home to break the bread and, and bless the bread and break it. Um, so I found one suggestion that a guest taking on this role, this role would have amounted to a messianic claim in certain communities. I have no, no idea how to assess that. Um, you know, and then also there might have, or there could have been just the sort of audacity that Jesus', Jesus followers often saw in him of taking on a role of leadership um, in, in, any, in any room. <laughs> Um, so I've, I've got a lot of lists here, but, um, you know, the, the last thing, um, I'm, I didn't realize this is as much of a list as when I was writing it, but, um, you know, and another thing which I feel the need to answer from, as people, someone from a more sacramental liturgical background, um, that there was this, um, you know, idea that Jesus' presence, that when Jesus was no longer with his followers, they would experience his presence um, remembered and represented in the Lord's Supper. And so the breaking of bread sort of was, all, even though Jesus was there, it was already clear that this is how Jesus was going to be present. Um, 
You know, any of these things might have played a part in what made the disciples see Jesus at the moment. But what the text made clear, it was... Wait, sorry. <laughs> that, you know, the in the text, regardless of what made them see at this moment, what the text makes it clear is that it took this moment. It wasn't seeing Jesus. It wasn't... This, their, any argument that he made in the study of the scriptures. It was sitting down with him in fellowship and breaking bread together. What convinced them wasn't a, some signs or wonders. It wasn't you know, proof texting or philo philosophical discourse. They recognized Jesus in his actions as a human being in community with them, sheltering for the night, sitting down to share a meal breaking bread to serve them as he served the multitudes gathered to hear him and as he served his friends when they gathered for their last meal together. None of the Gospels show Jesus showing himself to the rich and powerful after his death and resurrection. But the other three Gospels show Jesus appearing first to those most dear to him, most important in his story. Mary Magdalene, the other women who remained with him, on the with him at the foot of the cross, the 11 who remained his inner circle of disciples, who were named as his inner circle of disciples. But in this Luke's story in Luke's gospel, Jesus appears to people who are neither powerful by the world standards nor important to the whole story. Yet Jesus is there to serve him in an otherwise unimportant place where two of his people are gathered. I think the story reflects something profoundly true about how people encounter Jesus right up into the present day. I recognize that there are people who accept Jesus as their savior or make a choice to follow Jesus because they see visions or signs and wonders, or because they've been presented with what they consider to be an airtight argument that Jesus is the son of God who died and rose from the dead. But I don't know how common those experiences are. And I don't know well how well philosophical convictions or memories of past miracles sustain people in faith as they face the doubts and setbacks that are part of human life. I know that in times when I don't feel God's presence and I don't see God answering my prayers in the way I would like, I am constantly disappointed if I wait, if I just wait and watch for God to show up in these big, undeniable ways. And, you know, in the Emmaus story, it actually is the case that Jesus shows up in this undeniable way, physically present with a solid argument from scripture of how all the recent strategies had been foretold, that all of this was a necessary precursor to the liberation but they didn't recognize Jesus in any of that. They saw him in his actions, in his sitting with them, serving them, providing for their needs, reminding them of his promise to share his life with them. In the face of loss and trauma, despair, despair and fear, our eyes are often unable to see the most obvious signs of God's presence or hear the most articulate assurances of God's promises to us. But ultimately, it is 
that is seldom what will sustain us when faith and hope feel impossible. So often we are sustained by the presence of friends who will feed us when we don't have the energy to feed ourselves. Friends who will remain with us even when we are terrible company. Friends who will pray with us when we can't bring ourselves to pray. We are carried by community who will love us through our grief until we again find faith and hope.